Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Here at Beeson, we're in the midst of World Christianity Focus Week, and I have our guest speaker today to interview on the Beeson Podcast, Dr. Tom Steffen. Tom, welcome to Beeson and to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, Dr. Tom Steffen is a professor of intercultural studies at the Cook School of Intercultural Studies at Biola University. That's in La Mirada, California. There's a seminary, I think, connected with uh, Biola known as Talbot. And you have taught across the lines in both the seminary and the uh, wider university program, I think. Yes, um, and that's kind of common that uh, profs will teach from one school to the other or team teach. Um, I teach uh, one class there at uh, Talbot School of Theology, and it's on uh, cross-cultural evangelism and follow-up, recognizing that the world has come to us. God Mm. has brought the world into our backyards that seminarians now need to have a a cross-cultural toolkit uh, to be able to do evangelism and discipleship and to be able to teach that to their own people in their own churches. Now, you've used the word cross-cultural. You're a professor of intercultural studies (laughs) and lead a school with that name in it. What do these terms mean, intercultural, cross-cultural? Yes, uh, and that's a big debate. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody seems to really quite know exactly what the differences are. Let me start with cross-cultural. Cross-cultural tends to be that's an easier one to understand, that you go from your group to some group that's different than you are culturally, either, you know, in a minor way or in a, in a major way. So we went from the USA to Ifugao in the Philippines. That's a very cross-cultural mm-hmm. setting. Intercultural is more like where you have different ethnic groups that are all living together. And so you're looking at it from that type of perspective versus the Ifugao where it's basically one one culture with a couple of subcultures within that. So mm-hmm. we would call that cross-cultural in, in contrast to intercultural. Not long ago, I was speaking in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and they took me to a downtown neighborhood in which there were, I can't remember how many different language groups, ethnic groups. Uh, it seemed to be uh, one, one of the most diverse places. I wouldn't have expected it in Minneapolis, but that's what I was told. Now, that, that would be an example of an intercultural, intercultural. environment. Yes. And in some ways, it seems uh, much of our cities are like that today, including in the USA. Yes. And that's kind of the difference between, I mean, I'm speaking very globally here, but the difference between rural versus city. And so the urban life versus the rural life. Um, that's why the ministries within cities are much more complex to a great extent. Uh, for us, it was basically one tribal group that we had to learn their culture and their language with some, you know, variances like the north to the south here. But so it's pretty easy. But once you move into an urban setting where you have the intercultural uh, groups working together and then it becomes much more complex to do ministry in that type of setting. Well, I want to come back to this, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a Christian, how you became a missionary, and a little bit about your work, particularly with the New Tribes Mission, with which you were affiliated, I think, for 20 years. I grew up in uh, a home, a Christian home in uh, Indiana, up by South Bend in uh, Bremen, Indiana. It was the Apostolic Christian Church, and it was a Swiss-German, um, anti-Baptist uh, type back- background. 
Missions, uh, not so good. Um, they had one missionary couple that worked in Japan, and the church that they planted in Japan looked just like the church I attended, <laughs> right? And I grew up in, right? And um, anyway, there was a number of people in our church who were very mission-oriented, and they would have missionaries in. Well, that didn't go over quite well with some of the powers that be within the Apostolic Christian Church. So they decided to split off, and they did that. And they started their own church, Bremen Bible Church. Mm. And so two of the pastors left and went with it. My parents were involved in that move and um, some other people that, to help get that church started. And it was a church that was very much focused on missions. Uh, 51% of the budget went to missions, mm. 51%. And that went on for years and years and years, over two, over two decades that I'm aware of. So I, after, um, well, let me put, backtrack a little bit. Um, even when we were in the Apostolic Christian Church, we had a lot of missionaries stop by our house that would be speaking during the Sunday services or in little small groups and so forth. So we, so we got to know missionaries on a very personal basis. And so I got to know as a little kid growing up and giving a, give, being given little trinkets from, you know, all over PNG and different parts of the world. It was like, wow, you know, mm-hmm. this is a big world out here that I never knew existed. But that got us exposed to missions and um and the two pastors that did leave were very mission-oriented, pushed it very strongly. My sister uh, joined New Tribes Mission after that, after her gradu- after graduation from high school. And they eventually got, she eventually got married. They went to uh, Panama for four years, then they went to Guatemala for four years. And um, in the meantime, I graduated. I went to Fort Wayne Bible College at that time before I went um, to Taylor, I believe it is now. There I met my future wife on the... F- right before school started. I didn't mess around and waste any time. <laughs> she wasn't quite sure of it yet, but it took her a little longer than it did me to figure that out. And um, so we went there. And then um, after that first year, we transferred into New Tries Mission. We went through their whole training program, which was about, at that point, four and a half years. Now tell us just what the New Tribes Mission actually is. And why is it called that? New Tribes Mission is an organization that's, that is purposely designed to reach tribal groups, they don't work in the United States or Canada, but basically outside of that. So any tribal group, whether we're talking in Latin America or you go to Africa or into Asia, um, they would be sending out uh, missionaries to that. When we joined them, they were probably number three or four in size uh, mission organizations. So it was pretty big. They were very good at training you how to learn language, how to learn culture, and they actually introduced anthropology as a, as a topic clear back in the late 50s, early 60s. And so we received that training, which was very helpful once you move into tribal groups that, in certain cases, nobody had ever written on our tribal group. They had written on Ifoga, but there's about what, five or six different groups of Ifoga. So, but nobody had really written the culture up on ours. And we had the Wycliffe couple, from actually from my home church, who invited us to come in and do the church planning. They were working on the Bible translation at that point. When we when we got there, there's one fifth of the Bible. Uh, the new one fifth, excuse me, one fifth of the New Testament was uh, translated into their their dialect, and then it, of course it came through, and finally the New Testament was done, and they completed the Bible what three four years ago. Uh, so they have the entire Bible in their own language at this point. Well, that's wonderful. Now you you were working with these Bible translators, and you were preaching, and what were you doing there in your mission work? Yeah. After language and culture acquisition there among the tribal group, then um, our job was to do the evangelism, 
and start getting groups of believers together, get them into the community of faith, get church started, and then get that church multiplied. And that was our goal. And uh, it was an interesting journey doing that. We had one young man. His name was Alonso. He actually was head of his family, even though he was quite young. But his, his father had died. And they did all the traditional sacrifices, of, and they sacrificed animals such as chickens, pigs, and water buffalo, especially water buffalo when you get up to a death like that. And then his mother died, and so they had to go through the whole same thing again. They had to borrow money, sell their rice terraces, sell whatever they could, get the money for the sacrifices. So they were completely in debt. Then his sister got sick, and then we showed up. <laughs> and, and he would come. And he would argue with me at every meeting. Our meetings were held at night because they were very, they were farmers. So they worked when it was light, they were out. And when it was dark, they were back. And so he would argue with me over and over again. And in Ifagao, they have a tradition which uh, the idea is to defeat somebody in an argument. And the way you know that you have won is that the other person stops talking. <laughs> so I never stopped talking. <laughs> I see. So <laughs> and, <you> won. <laughs> and I won. And so he would go away mad. And But the next meeting, he was back. And he was firing questions again. And he'd go away mad. But he became the, the first really believer in our area right there. He became my really my great Timothy. And the guy was responsible for planning, winning, I don't know how many Ifugao, starting how many churches, not only in our group, but then going cross-culturally to the tribe to the south and to the uh, to the uh, east and to the south and uh, starting churches in there as well. Well, what a great background that is for the work you're doing now uh, out of Biola, but really on a, a world scale because your writings and your speaking have had such an important influence, I think, in younger missionaries thinking about uh, the World Christian Movement and, and how we can be engaged in it with these sensitivities. So uh, one, of the, one of the construals, I think it's original with you, you've talked that we are entering now the fourth uh, uh, era, era <laughs> of Christian. Would you just go through those four and tell uh, us what's new about the one we're in now? Yeah. Uh, Ralph Winter introduced some years ago the three eras of mission, and he started with um, uh, Hudson Taylor, who went to the coastlands, and, of course, that and talking about modern missions, so uh, in the late 1800s there, or earlier 1800s, going into uh, the coastlands because that was naturally the first, your first stop and there's no Christians, so you would set up camp there and do that. And so that's what he did. And the people that would follow would go, always were thinking long term. They weren't even thinking short term. They would often would pack their belongings in caskets knowing they would never come back. And so they went there. And ministry was tended to be always holistic, but priority was always given to the spiritual side of it. And so it was a hierarchy with the, the spiritual on top, the social on the, on the bottom, but always trying to do both of those. And he did both of those. Hudson Taylor would come along in the second era, and he would go inland. And that's where we got China, China Inland Mission. Missions, Sudan Inland Missions. So they had a lot of inland missions at that point. And Hudson Taylor was the type of person who adapted to the people wearing the garb, learning the language, all that kind of thing. He realized that it's very important to be one of the people and communicating in that way. Also holistic. Also, the people that would come out to work with him 
were thinking long-term. They weren't thinking short-term. And he was one of the first ones who's got into statistics and was looking at breaking China down, looking at how the, the different groups and where they were and all that kind of stuff. And some people looked on that and said that was very, uh, <clears throat> we don't do that kind of stuff. We were spiritual people. We don't think like this. But uh, he was not afraid to do that. That was the second era. The third era would be followed by Elmer Townsend, which was with White, who would form Wycliffe, mm-hmm. and doing the Bible translation, recognized, boy, these people need the Bible in their own language. Mm-hmm. And so he would be responsible for really in us pushing that and, and be kind of the founder of um, Wycliffe Bible uh, translators. And then another man who worked in India, Donald McGavern, who would be the father of the modern-day church growth movement, and would then teach at Fuller for a number of years, would push the whole emphasis on people group and recognizing that, no, we're really not responsible for reaching nations. We're responsible for reaching those people group within those nations. And so that switched missionary thinking very drastically. This is where our term, the unreached people groups, from there, came yes. from there. Yeah. Ralph Winter would pick that up at the U.S. Center for World Missions and push the, and add the unreached to it and people group. And now we have, that's where that whole thing came from. So that was the third era. Once again, everything was there, um, looking mostly long-term and generally spiritual was over social, but all integrated, trying to do ministry like that. And all three of those would be very pioneer in what they would be doing. They were going into brand new areas, so unreached people group. So you would go into the brand new unreached people group to try to bring the gospel, see churches planted, see a movement take place. So then as I've looked, and their idea was to reach unreached people groups, but as I was looking and observing what was happening here in the U.S. and then broader in the West, where were our people going that were going out now? And I was looking at, and this, I was thinking to myself, whoa, they're not, some of them are still going into pioneer settings, but mo- the majority of them are going now into already Christian settings. And it's Philip Jenkins basically would say, we've been kind of successful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in other words, we've, you know, we have churches now in almost every, every nation somewhere. There's some churches there. And so we have been actually successful in doing what we've been talking about. So what I found then, and I, I'm thinking, well, then there must be a new era that has, has really, that we find ourselves in. And like in any era, there will be things that will continue on and have longevity. They're not going to cease. And the Great Commission was given to everybody for every generation. So there will be pioneer work trans- taking place in every era that goes, and that will continue today. But what we're seeing from the West here, the predominant destination for many of the short-termers and many of the long-termers is to go to the reached. Instead of like the third era, go to an unreached people group, now we find ourselves in the fourth era going to the reached to reach the unreached. So we're going to people who are already Christians, and we're working with them, helping them to go uh, to reach the unreached in multiple ways and very holistic ways. And one of the great shifts, I think, that has taken place from the first three eras to the, the, the fourth era is that instead of a hierarchy now of spiritual and social, 
what it's kind of done is leveled out, and now it's kind of like you do both, and one may precede the other, but you do both. And so more of a leveling. In some cases, though, there might be an overemphasis on the social. And it's almost tipped the scale. I mean, we've almost done a reversal here where in some cases where social now has been ta- has taken over the priority. And then the evangelism, church planting, planting, discipleship, that kind of stuff has taken a secondary role. So I think that will be one of the big battles that will be challenging to the 21st century missions. Where where will that land? In some places, it's it's quite balanced at this point. So you have, I might start with social. In Ifugao, actually, we started with social and moved to the evangelism and church planning side of it. Other cases, you might start with evangelism, but then you'll, you'll bring in the, the social side as well. So it just depends. on It doesn't matter the start point. It matters that both are, are covered. So that Christianity is seen as a total way of life, not just a way of life for the future, but a total way of life for today and tomorrow. And this is what Jesus did, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. ministered to the whole person. Uh, yes. I, I love that statement by E. Stanley Jones, the great Methodist missionary to India, that a soul without a body is a ghost. A body without a soul is a corpse. <laughs> corpse. <laughs> and we don't want either one of those. No, no ghost, no corpse, <laughs> whole people. And Jesus calls us to minister in his name in this way. So I think that's a wonderful word to be uh, admonishing us uh, toward today uh, in the life of uh, mission. Now, in your lecture here at Beeson, uh, you gave us some definitions that I wish you would share with our podcast listeners. Uh, we use the book by David Bosch, uh, uh, yeah. Transforming, Transforming Mission, yeah. one, one of the great uh, textbooks, I yeah. think, of our, our time. Uh, and you, you kind of elaborated on this a little bit, the, the difference between missio dei, uh, two Latin words that mean mission of God, mm-hmm. the mission of God, missio dei, mission in the singular, and missions in the plural. Mm. Would you just talk about those three terms <laughs> briefly? <laughs> <laughs> Very briefly. Yeah, it gets a little complex, and people use them interchangeably, and so there's different definitions, of course. But how I was using the mission is this is everything, basically, that God wants to see done to bring glory to himself, to see his kingdom expanded universally and comprehensively. And then missions, with the S on the end of it, would be that's our role that we play to help him accomplish his mission. And that's the holistic side of it. It's uh, from church planning to discipleship, to leadership development, to community development, all these different, it's everything that it takes to fulfill his mission. So we are co-laborers with him in that role. And Missio Dei then is the this is the essence of who God really is. He's the, the God who created us, who wants community, who will take action, who will uh, go and take the initiative uh, to to make sure that he is understood as to who he is so that he can be glorified. So we, as his creation, will worship him and give that glory back to, to our creator. And he's also the great sender because of that. So we become the sent ones with authority to teach his word um, so that his mission can be accomplished through missions. That's, good. That's as complicated as you That's can get. That's very <laughs> helpful. And, and the, the main point that I think you're making about Missio Dei is that this relates to the very nature and character of God. Exactly. It's not just an external thing that we do in fulfillment of the Great Commission, but we are drawn into the innermost life of the one triune God of holiness and love who is within himself a holy community, a holy society of giving and receiving. And this is what we share in, in the, in the work of God in this world. 
And so I think that's a very profound insight. We don't often, we, we, we tend, many of us evangelicals, tend to think of missions as an activity. It's something yeah. we've got to do. And, yeah. Yeah. and we have all of our programs and plans. But this is really deeper and greater than that, isn't yes. it? Yes. This is what's driving all that. So this is in the background. And this is actually, yeah, this is his essence. This is his nature. That's what should be driving us and giving us yeah. that. It, it, then it goes beyond being a command. Yeah. It becomes a desire to be, join in to be that it, Join into his passion, his pursuit to to reaching the world. A God-centered approach, I think, is is excellent. Now uh, we're almost out of time. It's hard to believe, but well. <laughs> we've gone quickly. But I, I do want to ask you to comment a little bit on another uh, term that I think comes from the world of uh, economists: great commission companies. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Tell us about that term and what it means. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Steve Rundo, who was with the School of Business there at Biola, and um, I teamed up to write this book. Uh, it came out in 03, the first version of it did for Urbana, and then uh, revised in uh, 011 to update it. And I, I teach a class on church planning models and strategies, so I would invite him in for to come and talk how business could be used as a tool for uh, planning churches. So he would do that every semester or every year that we did the class. And so one day I just quipped, I think, you know, we ought to write a book on this. And that was it. And nothing happened for another year. And then I got a email from him and saying, uh, come over, I got an outline I want to show you on a book. So I went over to his office and then he lined, he lined it out and he said, hey, I like this. I really like this. And we wanted to go beyond tent making. Tent making was getting some bad some bad um, reporting on where people were going out and kind of faking like they had jobs and so that they could be busy doing ministry. So they'd have an office maybe in a business card, et cetera, a telephone, but they were never in their office. They were out doing so-called ministry. And so we decided we're going to change the term a little. A great commission company is one that really does make money. It's in business to make money, but much more than that. It also is involved in how do we plant churches while we're doing this. Mm -hmm. So it has two plans. It has a business plan that is a legitimate business plan in the country to make money. And it also has a legitimate ministry plan, and it tries to integrate those two. Mm -hmm. So that it, it is um, um, uh, the Great Commission companies are designed to not be job fakers or job takers, that they don't go in to take jobs, they get, they are designed to be job makers. So we go in to create work that allows people then to uh, raise their standard of living, and hopefully we pay a little more than what's naturally normally paid in the area. And it also then uh, enables churches to be able to be self-dependent, not looking to the West for financial needs to make their church work. And so they can be independent in that way. Are there places in the world where this model seems to be working well? It's all over the world. It's uh, in the United States. I mean, we have in the book, we have different uh, models that Pure Vita was up actually up in Seattle, Washington, which is helping fund Costa Rica ministry. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it goes all over and it's all kinds of it. And that's why we put about six different models in the back of the book to show you that you cannot limit it to one or two models. <laughs> yeah. God's too creative. <laughs> <laughs> well, my guest today on the Beeson podcast has been Dr. Tom. 
Tom Steffen. He teaches at the Cook School of Intercultural Studies at Biola University, La Mirada, California. A wonderful thinker, a missiologist, also an activist. You kind of bring it all together, Tom, <laughs> and it's great to have you here at Beeson, and thank you for this wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.